Hey everyone. So I had a really good time talking to Feroz Khan and Al Lim this week. They've written a chapter called Learning to Thrive, Educating Singapore's Children for a Climate Change World. It's part of a new book called Eating Chili Crab in the Anthropocene, Environmental Perspectives on Life in Singapore. So we've excerpted their chapter on new narrative. Uh, it's called Educating Children for a Climate Crisis World. So please check it out. It's on the website. But you should also check out the book. It's really interesting. It's full of chapters by young thinkers trying to really reevaluate how we need to transform our, you know, how we live, how we think, act, learn, how we govern to adapt to this new world of climate crisis. And I looked through the book, it, it, great read, you know, really you should, you should check it out. But I chose Feroz's and Al's chapter because it strikes right to the heart of what is most Singaporean which is our education system, and it questions the very fundamental values on which we educate our children. So before we go on, just a quick note, New Narrative has raised nearly 65,000 US dollars out of our minimum target of 75,000 US dollars to survive. So we need to raise this money by the end of June. So we have three weeks left for that last 10,000 US dollars. So if you like what we do, if you'd like to support us, please do chip in something uh, you know, anything will do anything to help us survive at newnarrative.com slash donate. Or better yet, join our movement at newnarrative.com slash join. Thank you so much. Okay, on to Feroz and Al. How are you guys doing today? Well, um, okay. I think kind of kind of like a weird feeling, I guess. Um, trying to kind of continue work, but at the same time, like, oh, is it lockdown? Is it not? So kind of trying to figure that out. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, are you guys like both uh, working or are you still at in university? I uh, based on your emails, I I wasn't sure. So, so we we both graduated, um, and I work right now as a researcher at NTU. So I work in a disaster uh, recovery and resilience lab. Al has also graduated from his masters, and he's about to head into a PhD program as well. Oh, cool! Where? Um. So I'm. Finishing my master's at LSE, I'm going to start my PhD at Yale, um, hopefully in August. So how did you two get to know each other then? Were you in the same program or something? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so, so we went to the same school. We went to the same college. Uh, both of us graduated from Yale and US. I graduated in 2018. Al graduated in 2019. Um, and it's, uh, it, was, it was really, a, I mean, it's a small community. And also, we were both sort of working and talking to the same faculty and the same professors about, about, about these topics. So I was focused on environmental studies and environmental humanities. And Al w w w was working with the same professor that I am, who is sort of the editor of this book, Matthew schneider Mearson. Um, and that's, that's really how we started to collaborate on this, on this work, but we've actually been collaborating on a bunch of things sort of outside of that. It's, it's interesting as well. Al, Al being half Thai, half Singaporean has helped us out a lot with some of our research that our lab does. We had a project in Chiang Mai on, uh, urban flooding and, and he was there, he was there and it's been, it's been, yeah, it's been a good and productive professional partnership, even as, as we're like both just a couple of years out of, uh, uh out of the first stage of life, I suppose. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's people your age who solve the you know who end up leading change in solving problems right so you guys are right where you need to be right where we need you to be 
And at the same time, we're very careful about that idea because we also acknowledge the importance of learning from the elders and those who have gone before us and acknowledging their work and learning like from the things that they've done and also acknowledging that we're kind of getting out of date very quickly as well. The memes are moving a little bit too fast now. Sometimes I get a little bit too too deeply cooked. I've been called a boomer once or twice, which is a, a real a real moment. And I think that's really what this whole like book project was about. It was really just... I mean, discourse or discussions about these issues in Singapore tend to be led by people with multiple degrees and multiple like civil service ministry postings. Uh, and the idea that you might be able to do that, like to have actually like a voice to contribute just because you are from here and you are young and you, you've done some work, I think is like a really valuable idea. It's about time. I think this is great. What you guys are doing is great. So how did this book project come about? Yeah, I, I mean, I think... I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone. I think everyone's coming from slightly different places, but um, I think it's a kind of, we got a chance to kind of think through kind of things we're passionate about and, and write about it with um, a professor. So for me, it was my last year in Yale and US and I, I was kind of invested in education. So I had worked kind of in my internship in, in private education. I was taking in like anthropology of education. So I was really thinking a lot about this. And, and so the class kind of, uh, there was a class um, on environmental humanities and and it was a chance for me to kind of reflect um, about where I where I am in terms of um, my own kind of educational journey and what I can be doing to write about the environment and the coming kind of climate change and thinking about humanities as also a, and just as legitimate a way actually to, to think through a lot of the problems that we have today. So I think in terms of, um, Kind of so so the essay was a chance to kind of like pull that together and and I think for me what kind of grounded that was this idea of how often like education is kind of looked at as kind of a badge of merit so people look at test scores and how that's like oh I um kind of like this is my this is my badge of merit in a sense but that to me kind of obfuscates the social labor that has got into that so I think for me it was reflecting on that social labor and thinking about oh how can this relate to the environmental crisis and environmental humanities and having kind of the space to develop that with Prof Schneider Meerson was super nice um and then it took another like a year <laughs> or so of editing um with Faraz we had like UK Singapore crazy time zone <laughs> negotiations um and like lots and lots of editing but but I think um yeah so so I think each person kind of brought to the book their own kind of like passions and and that's quite evident for example like climate activism they were talking about the die-in um and and so kind of developing that and and kind of looking at our own reflect like reflecting on our own position and and kind of uh, thinking about culture then as a site of contestation and and thinking through how how we might be able to to consider change as um together I think yeah. And I guess the, the thing I will add to that is that, so the book is called Eating Chili Crab in the Anthropocene. Our good friends at Ethos Books were the ones that published this, uh, a precious Singaporean institution. Um, and and the, the general tradition or the, or the field in which this book is working is, is usually called sort of the environmental humanities. And a lot of people think of environmental issues as basically like scientific, technological, if you're lucky, political issues. Um, but the idea of the environmental humanities is really recognizing that actually underneath a lot of that is our culture, our values, our norms, and the philosophy that underpins most of uh, how, how we go about our daily lives and how we structure our systems. Um, and and all of the chapters, all of the essays in this book really put, to, uh, really reflect sort of uh, an author's attempt to grapple with an aspect of Singaporean society through this lens of really looking at what are the 
norms, what are the deeper sort of cultural under, under understandings that shape Singaporeans' interactions with the environment. We've got a chapter about sand mining and how that's been a part of the construction of Singapore. There's a chapter on otters and how otters have, have become a huge part of the landscape mm -hmm. here. And and, yeah. and and we we decided to write about education just because, yeah, as, as Al was mentioning, he was focusing a lot on on education at the time. And, and, and for me as well as like a Singaporean adult, not too far removed from the days of being a, 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 a child uh, and, and from my own education, there is a lot to reflect on. And especially in the work that I've been doing on disaster resilience and what makes resilient communities or what makes households or people able to build back better after a crisis. Um, that was something that, that I think really connected with the idea of education. Yeah. Yeah. And as an educator myself, you know, I, I read your chapter and the reason why I want to talk to you guys was because you proposed uh, something, a very fundamental shift in our values, our assumptions, how we see the world. So, you know, too often you read about the environment and at, at best, I mean, it's about mitigation, it's about adaptation, but it's all external, right? You guys are talking about how we need to change how we see ourselves, our relationship, the world, the things we value, and that's so fundamental. So can you, you know, just again for the benefit of our readers, maybe summarize the, your argument in your chapter uh, in just a couple of sentences. For sure. Um, well, I mean, I think the main thing is people ask themselves, why is there so much carbon in the sky? And the answer to that is that it's actually not just technological or institutional or scientific. Uh, it's about the things underneath those things. It's about our culture, our values, our philosophy. And so if we want to fix climate change, we need to change our values too. Right now, our, our values are telling us to exploit, dominate, and control nature. When really instead, uh, if we want to survive, and especially if we want our children to survive, we need to learn to heal, restore, and safeguard nature. And that begins with values. That begins with education. So how did you end up writing this chapter and specifically in this in this way? You quote a philosopher, Throop, you know, you've got a, a school I've never heard of, right? So you, you've got some really interesting approaches to life, to education, to thinking. How did all this come together? I'm just very curious how one ends up creating a chapter like this. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself first. I, I, I really think that um, the reason that Throop, William Throop, who's who's a, who's an uh, environmentalist and philosopher from the from the U.S. The reason it spoke so much to me is it's a kind of sort of practical ethics, uh, and and I was at a point in my life when I just really knew that I wanted to to identify frameworks or ways of relating to the environment and ways of relating to the to society that not only transformed my relationship with society but were actually sort of a process of education for me. There were a process of development for me as well. Um, and that's the reason why it's so appealing to, to, to look at sort of scholarship and philosophy and ideas that actually recognize and accurately diagnose what, what is wrong uh, and, and can, can translate that at a, at a personal level. And so in, in, in the chapter, we talk about, for example, why it's actually quite difficult for children born in Singapore to love nature. And of course, this is not just true of Singapore. It's true of many places. It's true, especially of industrialized cities, but very few people actually sort of take that data point and uh, and sort of translate it or, or link it to the fact that actually there is a lot of suffering involved in childhood uh, in, in a context like this, in a context that is brutally competitive, in a, in a context that values you in a certain kind of way or that places you in a certain kind of hierarchy. Um, and I think that a chance to, as an adult, you know, reflect on that through through the lens of research, through the lens of really reading and working through some of these ideas. It's it's not just sort of writing a chapter. It's a kind of like personal 
development. It's, it's, it's a kind of way of connecting your mission or your, or your, your own like uh, capacity as a person to the causes and to the world that you are trying to build for the future. I think like I, I know so many people in the environmental movement and it is like a deeply distressing and stressful reality to be in all the time mm. to see each day how, you know, every consecutive day the world has gotten worse. And yet at the same time to, to, to recognize that there, there are these uh, options and there are these opportunities and there are these frameworks that come to us from, from many different places uh, that have so much to teach us. Right. Okay. And, and so how did you then... Uh, you know, I, I presume you started Throop and these ideas. How did you find the Forest School? And Al, how did you end up going there and doing this whole case study? Sure, yeah. So maybe like I have, I guess, three kind of points to answer that question in a sense of like, one is, is what Faraz is saying in how we're looking at Throop. I think something that Throop really brings is the sense of unity. How can we communicate easily actionable kind of virtues that people can understand and relate to. And I think that was kind of the benefit of, of using Throop's framework. Um, so he teaches at this, he used to teach at Green Mountain College, I think he's at Prescott now. So this is part of this consortium of eco-sustainable uh, tertiary programs in the US. So when, when we're looking at climate change, which is often described as like a wicked problem of something that's so big. And sometimes like, how do you even start describing what climate change is? I had such a big problem with that in, in trying to write the chapter. Um, but but these kind of virtues are, are easily communicable and relatable. So I think that was kind of why I stuck to, um, why I mean, we both stuck to this this framework as something that people can easily grasp, like, oh, competition, oh, collaboration. That's something we kind of feel and we see um, in our daily life. I think that's kind of um, dealing with a wicked problem. And the second is kind of like access. So um, one of my friends was a forest school coach. So I was like, hey, do you mind putting me in touch with this person? And then I got to talk to Darren, who who runs the school and founded the school. And um, so I went down on, on uh, kind of, I think it was a weekday morning. I just spent a few hours kind of just shadowing and, and really getting to know the, the kind of students and, and, and see what it's about firsthand. And, and also at the same time doing a lot of kind of like more desk research, historical research. On, um, so kind of access. So having a friend who then like connected often yeah. the case work um right is is this is just just to uh give us an idea is this school unique in singapore or is this something that that there are you know multiple um schools uh of this sort because i i mean i obviously i've never heard of it before until i read your chapter for sure there's there are it's a huge kind of global movement i think if i'm not wrong it started in in europe and and then it grew really rapidly um, in the UK. Wait, you mean the school itself, or and, and its branches, or the yeah, the forest school the forest itself. school movement? Yeah. Oh, okay, so it's a movement rather than a specific brand that is franchised. Yes, it, it's not a brand oh, okay. that's franchised. That would be quite ironic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a certain, <laughs> yeah. I think, like uh, kind of like you get trained. Um, in, in perhaps some of the, the more central places and then you're certified as a forest school coach um, and then you're to a certain level and then I think you can probably start um, your own kind of chapter in a sense. So Forest School Singapore is part of this kind of larger global movement of forest schools that started and it kind of borrows from this sense of outdoor education and a longer kind of history of that. But at the same time in Singapore, there's a bunch of other related movement, uh, kind of groups, movements and educational kind of um, almost institutions. So I know like Roundup Initiative, for example, or like other kind of startup um, like Maju Collective, they're also a lot 
um, pushing for a lot more environmental education in Singapore. So Forest School is kind of both like locally related to all these different initiatives, but also part of the global Forest School movement. Is this school uh, sort of certified, what's the right word, by MOE? You know, if you send your kid there, do they do PSLE or is it like a different system? Can they go into a normal, it's a primary school by the sounds of it or what? How does it, how does it all work? Just to place it in our heads, right? I think to help our audience place it in our heads. What, how does this school relate then to the sort of standardized education program or does it stand entirely apart? Which for me is fine. I have like uh, cousins, well, sort of, my cousin's children are homeschooled, so I have, you know, I, I, I'm seeing a lot more homeschooled kids nowadays and they turn out great and they have a great love of learning. Um, but yeah, so I'm just curious about the relationship of the school to the system. I think it's best maybe understood as a complement to, to a more traditional education. So whether that's, uh, you know, going to primary school every day and then going to forest school on the weekends or going to like forest school holiday camps in the summer, um, it's a complement, and and also homeschooled um, students are also part of the forest school. So I wouldn't say it replaces hundred uh, percent like what the MOE is doing, but it's it's an alternative kind of comp, maybe a complement uh, to to a more w- yeah. widely known Singaporean uh, education. Like like in Singapore, we're so used to going to school outside of school, right? There's like the the school, then there's tuition center, then there's, there's like all of these other modes and, and models. I was really fascinated when I when I was going through Al's notes because the forest school actually is not like uh, tuition centers or an enrichment class or or or, uh, or things like that. They they've got like a very accessible, democratic like uh, sliding scale pricing model that they're trying to be as inclusive as possible. And, and my understanding is it's mostly sort of. Uh, catering to like outside of normal school hours or outside of mainstream school hours especially on weekends or especially on like uh weekday nights uh students will go they've got plenty of special needs students they've got plenty of students uh of, of different like types of backgrounds as well i mean i, I think the the main sort of complement the the main sort of contrast uh that, that we can draw here and we talk about this in the chapter as well is that singapore actually has like a huge billion dollar tuition industry um, and that operates on like an entirely different set of frameworks of like foundational values or, or, or goals in general. And I think it was, it was quite interesting to hear sort of Al describe what his experience was at the forest school and how radically different it is to see like a bunch of kids just going around dairy farm with walkie talkies, climbing on rocks and like trying to sell rocks to each other or, or playing while being facilitated by a coach who's actually teaching them about uh, some of these really important uh lessons or models of relating to the world yeah cool so let's talk about those values then and this is for me by far the most interesting bit of your chapter right where you talk about the uh, you know two different sets of five values and you place them against each other so again for audience maybe could you one of you maybe summarize the sort of argument you're making there sure yeah um so i would say William Throop describes a set of virtues that that are considered dominant, that are the virtues that got us to where we are today. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with each of these virtues. Each of them can lead us to beautiful things. They can be valuable in very different contexts. But the the whole point is that 
the situation we're living in has shown that we've calibrated a bit too far in the direction of these dominant virtues. And instead, he proposes a set of five transition virtues that we should move towards. So I'll just describe sort of the dominant virtue and the transition complement. So the one dominant virtue is abundance. So this idea is that the world is abundant. Your, your role in it is to en enjoy, acquire possessions, pursue, pursue success, luxury, convenience, material consumption. Um, and it tends to also be correlated with uh, a real sort of discomfort with inconvenience or insufficiency or the, or the fear of being insufficient in any way. Um, the complement to that, the complement to abundance, um, and, and obviously abundance can be a very beautiful thing, but the complement to abundance that he's arguing for and, and, the, and that we really embrace is frugality. So instead of focusing so much on, a, on, on, on trying to pursue it as, as many material goods and as much material success as you can, you might think a lot more about intangible goods, or you might think about ways to repair or repurpose or, or, or pursue and cultivate thrift rather than sort of uh, just pursue the, the maximum possible material amount of, of, of stuff. Uh, and this is something, this is an analysis that's shared by a lot of people who've talked about the environmental crisis or the crisis that we're in of overconsumption. The other main thing, um, so, so, so the second sort of cluster of virtues is control. And the complement of control is adaptation. So with control, you essentially believe humans can control their surroundings. Technology gives us the ability to change our environment and shape it to what we want. You should cultivate ambition, dominance. Humans are dominant over nature, and they can shape nature to how uh, nature ought to look. And I think the 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 counterpart to that of adaptation is really kind of re recognizing that there are limits to what we can control uh, and that if conditions change unpredictably it's better for us to cultivate you know resilience flexibility adaptability rather than insisting that we can like precisely control uh, the, the world that we live in and uh, yeah I mean that's that's just the first two and and, and, all, and already there's a lot to go into about how some of these virtues manifest in Singapore, right? The classic sort of symbol of abundance in, in Singapore is the symbols of material success, the 5C, cash, car, condominium, country club, credit card. Like these are things that we, we, we're sort of taught from an early age symbolize material success or, or, or symbolize the pursuits of like the Singaporean middle-class life with control. I mean, Singapore's entire strategy or way of dealing with climate change is to literally reconfigure the shape of the island by spending $100 billion to build polders along the coastline. And we have like Gardens by the Bay, which is a monument to how humans have managed to, to, to sort of control or shape nature or twist it around the metal that we've, that we've decided to sort of drive it around. Um, the, the third virtue, uh, and, 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 and I think this is something that's particularly interesting in the Singaporean context, is conviction. Uh, so in the dominant sort of context, we, we, we tend to value conviction a lot. We, we, we tend to really enjoy when people argue forcefully and clearly. We tend to be skeptical of people who express doubt or uncertainty or, or just uh, in general. We, we, we try to sort of, we, we, we end up in a culture where we really value the strongest voices or the most uh, or, or, or the clearest voices, uh, and, and we conflate sort of clarity with 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 strength. I mean, it, it is a classic. Uh, this is a classic thing in Singapore, where in 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 in, uh, in the chapter we talk about how it's actually become quite normal and scarcely even newsworthy to bully the opposition or to bully people who are on on on, on different ends of, of some of these issues. And we really value and respect and lionize sort of the 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 figures in our society that that can speak with such conviction. And of course, there are many places, there are many contexts in which conviction is a beautiful thing. Conviction can be a very powerful and important virtue. But the counterpart to conviction that we see as being more valuable or more important is humility. Uh, and humility acknowledges that actually human knowledge is limited and it's not always generalizable. Other people's perspective, 
other people's perspectives might be just as valuable as our own. And it's best to try to listen and frame arguments with their full complexity in mind. So instead of, for example, trying to bully or browbeat uh, people that are trying to raise the alarm about conditions of a specific industry or a specific sector, you might try to listen to them openly and you might try to acknowledge when they have a point and especially acknowledge when they turn out to be right and be generous about giving credit or be generous about about uh, about these types of issues. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, I think in, it's, it's when we contrast these two models that we've learned to, that we've sort of been conditioned to appreciate and value with the alternative model that, that I think that there is a lot of possibility that gets uncovered. Uh, and and then the next two virtues, I'll just go over them very quickly, are competition and individualism. So competition uh, in, in the dominant culture is, is really, really valued. We, we, we like winners. We, we, and we, we fundamentally believe in Singapore, when everyone competes, our welfare improves. If we all just compete together in the, in the meritocratic race, uh, it, it, everyone becomes better off. We focus on outcomes. We believe that opportunities are scarce and they, they should go to the best. Instead of competition, we think cooperation is, is really, and collaboration is really what we should, be, we should be going for. And collaboration, you understand and care for other people first. You focus on processes, not necessarily on outcomes. You create opportunities together. You, you make sure that people that, that are working with you uh, feel safe. Uh, and then the last thing is individualism versus systems thinking. In individualism, you really sort of see if something is not working, there's one part of it that's not working. Um, and, and, and that successes or failures are caused by individuals. The, the, the great man rises to the top. Uh, or, for example, if, if, if there's a huge problem with the MRTs, it's the SMRT CEO that needs to be replaced. Um, whereas with, with systems thinking, you might be able to, to, to offer an analysis of some of these issues that sees how individuals, even leaders, even like individuals in many different contexts actually work through and operate in systems and systems can produce negative outcomes even if individuals do nothing wrong, even if individuals are doing their best. Um, and it sees sort of the, the, the causation of things not so much as the result of the work of great men, but the result of communities or the result of larger contexts. So that's like a lightning quick tour of, of, of sort of the, the five main virtues. Um, I, yeah, I, I hope that was clear. Yeah, that was really clear. Thanks. Thanks for us. And if anyone wants more information, they can always uh, read your chapter, and, uh, which we'll have on the new narrative website, or at least an extract of it. But, you know, I think the obvious thing that really jumps out at me, especially from my own experience and where I'm sitting is that you're not just challenging how people think, you're challenging the fundamental power structure of Singapore itself, right? Because what we have is an establishment and a government which has over the last um, couple of decades, four decades, since the 80s, um, predicated its legitimacy, its rule, um, the, the sort of rationale for many of these decisions on the very values that you are challenging. You know, so what you're, you're suggesting, um, it, it makes a lot of sense, but you're up against a whole superstructure that is built on the opposing set of values. And how on earth are we going to have, even start having an honest conversation about the relative merits of these values when even today, you know, we, one of the things inherent in, say, how Heng Suket talked about the budget was very much, oh, individual responsibility, you know, frugality maybe, but also this idea that uh, there's a meritocracy, there is a, you know, that we need to have competition, that 
we can't afford to do certain things because that will put Singapore at risk, right? So the whole um, power structure we have is, is very much predicated on those values and would resist what you're proposing. So how do we even start talking about these? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really powerful question and it's exactly why this chapter focuses on education. And, 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 and you sort of brought up how this is kind of a radical uh, approach. I, I mean, I, I, I use that word sort of in the original meaning of it, which is to really return to the roots of something, to really return to the roots of why something is the way it is. I, I think that word has been, has been like the, the, the association that people have with that word can sometimes like lead people to forget that that really is what it's about. It's really about looking at the roots of some of these problems. The argument in the chapter and, and the argument from the environmental camp uh, has always just been that it, it's not really a choice. We will have to shift uh, if, if we are to survive. The, the understanding from climate change and the understanding from the, from the idea of the Anthropocene or, or, or the, the ways that many, many communities around the world are trying to reconfigure education, reconfigure waste, reconfigure water, reconfigure consumption, is that we are living in a time of ecological breakdown. And insofar as you know, Singapore does a very good job of uh, externalizing that breakdown, it's very difficult to notice it if you are here. But the the argument that we're making and the, and, the, and the science that we quote in the article is that we will not be able to run away forever. And it is a sort of denialist, uh, a, a soft denialist approach to say we can continue as we are. And that mm. includes continuing as we are with our values. The way we will get all of this carbon out of the sky will not just be by the invention of some new scientific technological silver bullet. It will require some difficult conversations in our polity, amongst our communities, and, and like within Singapore itself. I'm optimistic that our, especially our educators, can recognize the huge case that's being built by a lot of the scholarship, a lot of the research right now on child development, child well-being that is coming out of the, of the forest school and is coming out of all of, all of these environmental education uh, attempts as well to, to, to sort of see how not only for their own well-being, but for their well-being in an era that is going to be radically different from the, the, the world that, that, that we were born into, um, these other approaches or these other virtues are, are going to be necessary. I'm, I'm not contesting, you know, of course, it, it was perhaps like uh, the, the, the success story of Singapore is predicated on these virtues or, or, or a system designed on these virtues succeeding enormously on some metrics. And sure, by some metrics, we, we, we surely did. By GDP metrics, of course. But the question is just, sure. we are yeah. about to enter an, yeah. an, an epoch in which that, that metric becomes questioned. And it's not at all clear that that is... Uh, the, the definition of success. As, I mean, as, as my own work has pointed out, uh, it's also debatable whether our success was based on that metric, right? That um, one of the things I point out is a lot of the foundations for our success came out of policies in the 60s and 70s, which were fundamentally very socialist and, you know, systems thinking, right? How do we work together to create a better society? And it's the rise of neoliberalism combined with economic missteps and disasters and mistakes by the PAP government, some in their control, some not in their control, that kind of led us to shift very drastically. But it's also then um, sort of, we, you know, we have this uh, sort of artificial idea of, of pragmatism, right? Whatever that, that means. It usually means just do what's the most convenient. But the, the sort of... Um, political rhetoric invested in the existing values makes it very hard to, for establishment figures to then do 
you know, a 180 and uh, embrace new values when all the, their whole careers, their legitimacy, their electoral victories, their grasp on power is predicated on the existing set. Um, so, you know, Al, do you actually notice the kids behaving differently or is it, you know, and again, maybe this is my own experience with myself or uh, with my son, like you go to, you know, external enrichment uh, and you behave one way, but then you go to school and you have to behave a totally different way because the incentive structure is different. And school is five days a week. It's, uh, you know, so important. You've got exams, determines your future. It overwhelms what you learn in the other aspects, whether it's your co-curricular, your enrichment, you know, or even at home, and you become socialized into a different way of, of thinking. So do, do the kids that you observe, do they actually, do you feel like they actually end up having their values changed? Are they at least more thoughtful or open-minded towards these values? Yeah, um, so, so many thoughts about, about both like kind of the current conversation and, and, and how and how I encounter the kids. I, I can't really speak authoritatively on like a longitude, like on longitudinal study like across years of how they've changed just because um, I haven't been there for many years. But um, at the same time, I think that there was kind of, I mean, for example, I was just walking along and, and this kid was like, oh, look, it's a cumulonimbus cloud. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And so like naming all the different kinds of clouds and I'm like, I'm, I'm a geography master's student and I'm like, I should know this, but uh, well, <laughs> that's very good. It's, like, it's going to rain because X, Y, Z. And I, I think thinking across boundaries was something that was really, really interesting to me and looking at and using what was around in their immediate vicinity to create um, new things. Like, I, you, you know, like creating a band out of like sticks and, and being encouraged to do that. Um, and collaborating with other people and and not trying to make the best music, the best sound, the best kind of whatever, but but really just kind of enjoying the moment, kind of making music together, even though you know it's just sticks and 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 kind of like branches and leaves and and all and all that jazz. It was it was kind of using what they have around them. And I thought that was super interesting. And I I it's not that the um, the current students in schools aren't doing that and they do have that. Um, and, and also, I think there, there is something to be said about the reform in terms of curriculum. Um, I think next, I'm not wrong, I'm, I'm hearing that next year there's uh, perhaps going to be a focus more on sustainability in, in the secondary school geography curricula, um, which, which is good. And, and thinking about sustainability, not just as a label or a floating signifier, which means like, oh, can, it can really be co-opted or meaning like 2,000 different things, but thinking critically about how this term came to be, uh, thinking about what does it really mean to be sustained, like to, to develop sustainably and, and systems thinking on um, this idea of like, is digital really the best um, solution forward? All these ideas really um, have to be thought through really carefully. And, and, and I think part of the reason of like, part of the, to me, um, this chapter really gets towards is, is looking at what values are currently being taught and inculcated through school and through kind of like, you know, students don't just learn in school, but also through tuition, through their parents, and 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 through like kind of CCAs. I spent most of my childhood swimming, um, and so that's also places to learn and thinking about what values are being inculcated and what they should be. And and I mean, coming because I, I spent a few years overseas and I came back to Singapore. And so for me, when I came back, I realized university here it was like if I spend one night, um, you know, hanging out with friends, I feel like I have to catch up on every single night. And oh, what if all the other students were using that night to do work, 
and then I live with them. So I'm just like, oh, they're like asking me, oh, if, have I done the work? And so this kind of like pressure cooker really kind of is structured into the everyday education in Singapore. And so I think if that's the value, if, if it is, um, I guess this chapter is asking people to think, is, is this, are these the values that we want to continue living with? And if it is, it's a choice, right? And, and the status quo is a choice. And so thinking through really like, do we want to continue the status quo and maintain that and choose to do that and take responsibility for it? Um, even though it's broken by most standards, um, or how should we change? And I think um, everyone has a different remit in, in the ways that, whether they're a parent, whether they're educator, um, they each has a different remit. And I think people do have the, it's, it's kind of like, I think um, one panel recently talked about salami slice cuts um, of social change. So it's not just some big systemic thing um, that, that kind of has to happen as well, which would be great, but um, that as well. And I think in terms of what you're talking about in terms of political change, um, I mean, it, even in that modality, there's been a lot of talk with like, for example, like economics. Um, uh, Linda Lim has written the like a lot of on the economic history, um, thinking about how migrant workers have been the, the labor policy to date, and that's just not really the best way forward. And, and thinking through really is that, if that's kind of the way we're going forward, what does that mean? And, and can these forms of technocratic care really bring us forward into, into a new age? And I think another chapter talked a little bit about oil and fossil fuels in Singapore and how, how radical policies back then brought us to where we are today and, and the need to rethink and, and re-radicalize some policies to to kind of set us up for the future, I think. I just want to add one thing, PJ, which is which is that you, you brought up that like this is a very real point of grief and like a real like it's important to like sit with this and like like let it land that we can send children to these uh, to the forest school. We can send children to all of these places where we hope that they will get a very different, less authoritarian understanding or, or, or a truly like more ecocentric understanding of their place in the world. But if the system that they go back to every single day in schools is fundamentally authoritarian or is fundamentally dominant uh, or is like is fundamentally unsustainable, that's not enough. And and so that's precisely why I mean this chapter and and this movement. In, in so many places around the world is acknowledging it's not enough to give children some nice ecological understanding of their place in the world on the side. That has to be a core part of our curricula. That has to be a core part of our mission for education. The, the, the purpose of education cannot only be to, to, to produce GDP. It has to be to orient a different kind of person or a different kind of relationship with nature and, and, to, and to enable people to heal that. And I think that the, like if, if you know, if, if there are people who are concerned about this or if, if I mean and there is rightfully a lot of concern today about having children at all or, or or raising them in a context that we're about to go into there's actually a huge amount of resources both online and and, and in the world on quote-unquote raising an eco warrior like that's actually literally the name of one of the blogs uh, that, that we cite in this in this piece and there's a lot of writing that's been done on how actually children have a very intuitive and clear grasp of their connection with nature and their connection with different systems in in, in, in the context that they're in and it actually takes education to alienate them from that connection and to alienate them from the from the natural world that they are otherwise so capable of connecting with and what we saw like what I saw in the forest school and what we what we're increasingly seeing around the world is if you give people even a slight opportunity to reconnect, to really understand, and this is true of adults as well. There's so many adults going on a journey of re-education and reorienting themselves in a more ecological understanding of their place in the world. Uh, if you give people a slight excuse to do that, 
the intuition kicks in again and we begin to understand how exactly these connections are valuable, how our food comes to us, the, the, the way that the materials that around us are, are created and shaped. Um, but yeah, I just, I just wanted to sort of really acknowledge it is, it is painful to, 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 to go, to go to school and to recognize that, that this is what is happening. Um, but at the same time, that is precisely what creates urgency for this kind of change. You know, you're, you're picking up on a, a common theme of these podcasts, you know, because in multiple podcasts now, I've talked to either NGOs, civil society activists, educators who've talked to school children, and they find that the, the students are really enthusiastic and keen to help and open-minded. And they've been trained in, you know, some of them in, in the best pedagogical tradition of inquiry and criticism. But the moment they try and create actual change to put those values into practice, boom, they hit a brick wall, right? Even in school, if they propose we should do things differently within the school, they get in trouble, right? Uh, civil society activists go and talk, like the migrant workers, uh, the migrant worker issue, we had a podcast where uh, Steph and Devro went and talked to students and the students kept proposing very marginal things. Oh, let's be nicer to workers. And they kept saying, no, the problem is systemic. And finally, the students explained, we're not allowed to propose systemic change. We're not allowed to think that way, right? And, and then you leave school and you hit this, this entire, I, I don't want to call it the, the real world. School is as real as anything else, but the, the sort of working world and the incentive structures around you to behave in a certain way are overwhelming. So, you know, I totally get what you guys are asking, and, but it's just the, the scale of it is daunting. So, which leads to my next question, right? Is something we always say a new narrative, which we believe if you can't imagine a different, better future, you can't achieve it. So what does a better, different future for Singapore look like? Whether it's, you know, you can talk about big, broad systemic change, or you can do the salami slicing metaphor and talk about little things. But let's imagine if we had these values to help, help people listen, you know, who are listening. What, what, is, what is a different, better Singapore which works in harmony with nature, which adapts, right? Which is frugal, which thinks in systems. What does it look like? That's always like the most exciting and delightful question to answer, right? Because it, it just, it, it, it allows us to come up with a utopia, a manifesto for the world you want to live in. And, and we, we sort of give like a little portrait of that in the chapter, right? Like what would it look like if we raised our children in a Singapore that actually provided them with an education that rooted them in, 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 in the bioregion that they're a part of? You might imagine that, you know, our children will be the first to point out when the trees, when the dipterocot trees begin to fruit. They might understand or explain to us the names of roads. They might replace the five C's of consumerism with the five S's of sustainability or something infinitely more inspiring than, 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 than what is so dull. I think the, 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 there is actually a chapter in this, in this book that's called, uh, uh, that, that really talks about uh, a vision for a post-growth uh, or, 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 or post-anthropocene in Singapore. Um, for me personally, like just speaking for myself, I think the the first and core aspect of a, of, a, of a Singapore that I can imagine or that I would want to raise children in is really a context in which I, I felt Singapore was truly honest about the about the costs of its own existence and about the the way that it related to the to the countries around it. Um, in the in the work that I do uh, professionally and in, in, the, in the work that I did uh, as, as I was going through college a big focus of that was actually Singapore's relationship with Southeast Asia and how so much of what props up our prosperity here, including the production of plastics, including the burning of fossil fuels, 
is externalized onto onto communities around us. And so I'd love to see, you know, uh, I had a friend who coined the term uh, um, uh, 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 modular generation package or something along those lines, just a, an, an opportunity to re- redistribute or really reconfigure the the economic logic that ends at our border or, the, or that, that that ends at the way that we treat people with with the, with, with a shiny red passport um, and really invites them to, to be part of our communities in different ways. What about you, Al? What's your what, what's your utopia? It's such a big question. <laughs> Indeed. And, and often, I guess, in classrooms, you always have this kind of um, debate almost about contested visions, right? Who whose vision is going to win out? Who like? And the idea of a garden city, for example, is rooted in, in modernist urban planning. And, and what we have today, towers in the park, that's very much a, a modernist urban planning construct. And so, I think for me, it's, it's this idea of, of of questioning, and it's critical questioning, um, reflection, in other words, and action, and this. And this kind of goes back to to something kind of um, kind of embedded within the chapter. This idea of biophilia, for example, um, it has its roots in an earlier kind of a Frankfurt School thinker, um, Fromm's work um, in the 1960s, and then that got taken up in education with a more radical thinker, Paulo Freire's um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, and it's, it's super interesting. So this idea of bio biophilia, which is uh, bio meaning life and philia meaning uh, love, and and to think about pushing back on on all on kind of the banking, what he calls a banking mode of education. So what, what we notice is the opposite of biophilia, is necrophilia, where students are passive receptacles and they're like a bank, like inserted um, information is inserted into them. And kind of pushing back on that and thinking, you know, how can we create, not, not co-create knowledge as, you know, if that term has been kind of circulated to do, but really a dialogic process of, of creating knowledge together. And I think for, what we're trying to do is to suggest uh, possible trajectories um, to to look at, um, and and not trying to be too prescriptive in them because um, I think the whole jo- joy is is creating this process together, and and so this idea of of uh, dialogue and dialogic processes, thinking you know, talking to each other, creating things together, I think that's part of what we're trying to to push for um, in the chapter, and education being a key kind of platform to um, to do that, and I think. In, in the intro to the book, there's this sense of uh, conversation, critical thought and action kind of being, being the key kind of ways forward. But, but really um, looking at kind of what does it mean for, for education to push back on, on these notions of banking models and, and this idea of people being, you know, prem- like linked to kind of how much money they earn, for example, like this is really real kind of anxiety in, in university today where, oh, um, you know, the, what job did you get? Did you get an internship? This oh, what, what, which, which uh, big company did you, did you land? And, and, and there's a real anxiety built into that. I mean, even from primary school, like, and there's a sense of like, we like in primary school, I still remember very distinctly people be like, Oh, did you study? I'm like, Oh, never. Then they're like, Oh, I also never studied, but we both spent the whole night last night studying. <laughs> and, and this sense of like posturing each other. But the, the problem then comes in when someone does get a better grade, they're like, Oh, I am better than you. And this kind of badge of merit idea comes back in where, where we believe that, Oh, someone is actually superior based on their grades, based on how much money they get. And I think life is, you know, like it just has to be a lot more than that. And and thinking about pushing back on this idea of uh, uh, economic value, you know, and conflating that with with someone's intrinsic human value. And I don't think that's right. Um, and thinking about how you know the social labor that really goes into education, the tuition, the parents, and all that, and and giving back towards those avenues instead of having that and holding that as a badge of merit, for example, is is kind of 
um, one way to, to look at being more generous and new, new kind of recoding our ethics of care, I think is super, super important. Um, so I don't, I don't know, I think, I think we're, what we're trying to do is open, uh, open new trajectories and open new avenues for change. Um, and doing that together, I think, is something that um, we're hoping for. That sounds great. I, I hope so too. I mean, maybe it's, it's um, you know, me being old and tired, but I, I just, the, the scale of the challenge is daunting. And I know that it's, it works against so many of the normative values that have been put in place by the neoliberal economy over the last couple of decades, but also against human nature. You know, we, the, 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 the complexity of the world makes it very tempting for us to want to seed uh, our own agency to a powerful figure who will just tell us what to do. Even within new narrative, you know, uh, the, we want to model uh, progressive, positive values for Southeast Asia. Uh, but, you know, I've had a colleague say, look, you just tell us what to do, right? Because they got tired of this endless process of consultation, you know, uh, that I was trying to do and trying to get everyone on the same page and collaborate and move forward. And I could understand they were just, they were just tired of, of constantly having to think and think and think. And they just wanted to be told what to do. And, you know, fair, right? But uh, it, it, it's, yeah, it's something you really need to practice. And I think um, our societies are, are really out of practice so you're, you're really speaking to something universal. You know, authoritarianism has really uh, pushed forward around the world because people are, on one hand, fearful, and on the other hand, exhausted. The, yeah. the, the crucial nuance I would add there, PJ, is that we are not alone. That actually the, the, the people trying to reinvent or trying to rebuild or trying to create a different status quo or create anti-authoritarian systems of education or create systems of education where children can actually... Uh, make a difference in the communities that they are in. There are so many amazing examples of this happening around the world, and there's so much to be inspired by. And so, I mean, I I I think the 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 biggest, most unfortunate aspect of of, of living in this time is that we we begin to believe what the system tells us about ourselves. And I, I I've had this conversation with so many parents who 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 will say, you know, yeah, my kid is struggling because you know he's been he's, he's been streaming this or that, or he's struggling a little bit. He's behind in his math class, and you know I'm worried he won't make it. And and my my answer to that has always been in so many other contexts around the world, in so many communities, especially in indigenous communities or in communities that are rooted uh, or, or that practice more rooted ways of relating to the earth. The 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 distinction is always even if the system tells us to believe certain things about ourselves or our children or our communities, there is, so, there is an alternative. There, there are always other ways. There are always uh, th like models and, and, and ways of approaching these problems to learn from. And I, I mean, I, I will just say that in the process of putting this chapter together, I had to read you know, a, huge, a huge amount of scholarship from many, many communities around the world that are trying these radical new ways of education, communities that are facing conflicts, refugee education. In, in so many different contexts, there's so much to be inspired by and in how it is actually very, very possible to overcome the authoritarian conditions or the, 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 the sort of defeatist uh, pragmatism that we've come to really inherit mm. uh, and, and that, that, that it is really a, truly a choice uh, to, to embrace it or, or, to, or to try and actively overcome it. So picking up on, on, on that, um, what, would, what would be, you know, and I guess this is the last question, we're almost out of time, what would be one thing that you'd say to 
uh, our listener, whether we have a lot of listeners who are students, we have a lot of listeners who are parents, we definitely have some listeners who are educators. Um, so what, what's something they can do, uh, given the constraints within the system, whether they're, you know, whether they have any agency within the system, but what's, what's one thing you'd, you'd say to, to them about how to, you know, try and pursue the values that you've suggested? Yeah, um, well, I, I'm going to sound like a hippie, but this is actually peer-reviewed empirical research. Uh, go into nature. Go and really into try and explore the green spaces in Singapore that are as wild as possible. And there are so many resources to help us really approach them. It can be quite challenging to kind of go to Mekrichi and hear sounds and not necessarily understand what any of that is about. But there are so many resources. In Singapore, there's actually a huge community of naturalists and birders and even Pokemon Go players who will find, like, are, are very excited to move out in these in these spaces. And there, there are resources, there are apps, like iNaturalist is, is an app that is sort of, like, based around helping you. You, you can take a picture of a plant or a picture of an animal and it helps you identify it. It helps you see what others around you have tagged. Lots of Singaporeans use it. There's, there's, it's, a, it's a really good way of understanding the places around you. I, I would say if there's any place where you can begin the last common meeting point for all of us that is uh that that continues to resist the 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 the, the attempts that we make to put categories on it it is nature it is going into these spaces and we are blessed with so much of it there are so many of these treasures and gems in singapore and it's precisely why it is called forest school right it's 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 it's, it's difficult to imagine sort of coming to these conclusions or really developing these values while completely alienated from the reason that you are trying to care about these questions. Um, yeah, so, so, so that's what I would say. Like, if, if there is any medicine that I can prescribe for, for, for this disease, it is go into nature. Um, and I don't mean that in like a, in like a, or even, even, even if I did mean that in the hippiest way possible, there is so much now science and empirical evidence about the impact of, of, of nature or the impact of green spaces, especially wild green spaces on our own human physiology, uh, on child development, on our, on our emotions. Um, and it really opens up new spaces and, and, new, and, and new ways of thinking. Yeah, you know, you guys actually have made me feel a bit better because when I think about the choices that my partner and I have made as a parent, uh, as parents and um, the what we've tried to foster in our son, I think that then conventionally those might be seen as the wrong choices, but the conventional school system here was killing his love of learning, you know, and... and Convention collapsed the ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. Convention yeah. has led us to this collapse. So I, I at least in that in that small way, I feel a lot better actually after this conversation because I, uh, without knowing it, maybe at least I was, uh, you know, helping him foster a, a greater love of uh, curiosity and inquiry and open mindedness and. Um, connectivity, frugality. It, it's it's not just good parenting. It's peer reviewed science. It's we, like we understand clearly. <laughs> right. Children need this. They know they need this. We know they need this. We know it helps them. Adults need it. We all need it. Uh, yes. And it's it, it, it's one of the it's one of the it's one of the most crucial things. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that, PJ. Yeah, that's really inspiring to think about. <laughs> all right. So thank you so much, guys. Um, thanks for joining us, uh, and thanks for you know uh, talking to us today. Thanks so much for the conversation, BJ. Um, once again, the book is called Eating Chili Crab in the Anthropocene. It's out with Ethos Press. You, you can order it online. Uh, an extract of our chapter will be on the New Narrative website. We're, we're so excited. We're so grateful. Thank you so much. And that was Feroz Khan and Al Lim. Big thanks to them for joining us today. 
And if you've listened this far, hey, what did I tell you? That was great, right? So be sure to tune in to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. That's next weekend. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia, including the excerpts from this chapter. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Membership start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. And seriously, it's a steal for what we are doing. Of course, I'm biased, but you know, I believe uh, we provide really, really good content for very little. And if you don't want to become a member right now, you can still support us. Um, just donate, newnarrative.com slash donate. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we just have three weeks left to raise $10,000 to help us survive till the end of the year. So please do, if you can, we really appreciate it. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Take care of you. Stay safe.